Let's open up our Bibles. If you have them, we'll be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Here the Apostle Paul wrote, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would strengthen our faith tonight. Wherever we are weak or weary or doubting, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring about conviction and strength and even zeal. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not yet come to believe in Christ, we pray that tonight would be a night of your great work in their heart that they would trust, that their eyes would be open, and that they would see your love in your Son through his sacrifice for sinners like us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there are, there are two extremes that you find in churches, right? Christian or Christian-y kind of churches, right? You have those churches that are all hellfire and brimstone and they really work hard to make sure that you feel like an absolute loser, Right? They leverage it. They want you to know that you are unworthy scum. There's even a church, I think it was in Vegas, called Scum of the Earth Church. True story. Uh, so I'm not saying that that's how they were. That was just their name. So there, there is this you know, temptation for some churches to really put the screws to people, right, metaphorically, so that they really feel bad about themselves. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we have those churches that they're like, hey, you know what? We don't want to do that. We want people to feel good. We want them to be positive. We want to be uplifting like Christian radio. We just want them to, to feel good about themselves and not to be dragged down. And it's a tricky thing, really, especially when you start to talk about worthiness and unworthiness. I'm guessing that most of you have felt unworthy at certain points in your life, like in your life, in your world, you felt unworthy. And when you feel unworthy in the world, in a given situation, it can be paralyzing. I'm unworthy. I'm no good, I'm undeserving, and so you do nothing. You don't act, you don't move. Now, there are situations in which you are unworthy, and it may not be uh, a bad thing. It, It may just be reality, right? You are not always deserving of something that you desire or even need. But unworthiness, misunderstood, can be paralyzing. And then, of course, a sense of worthiness, well, that can be weaponized as well because people who think that they are worthy, especially worthy of everything, well, then they have a sense of entitlement. Things are owed to them, they're deserved, and they walk through life thinking, life thinking that everything should be given to them. And so in religion, the concepts of worthiness and unworthiness are incredibly important and have to be dealt with biblically, carefully, theologically, and they have to be applied precision. Well, here is what I want us to take away today. If you're new here, we always give a summary of our messages, whether it's me or somebody else. We like to present a simple summary. It's what everything is about. So everything that I'm going to be exhorting you to believe, everything that I'm encouraging us to embrace is wrapped up in this sentiment. Only a worthy Savior 
can save an unworthy people. Now, there are some presuppositions in, presuppositions in there, right? Namely, that there is a sense in which we are unworthy. Only a worthy Savior can save an unworthy people. And we see this in these verses. So I just want us to see two things tonight by way of encouraging you, not discouraging you. I want us, I need us to see our unworthiness, where we are unworthy. I need us to see Christ's worthiness, the worthiness of our Savior. So first of all, our unworthiness. Back in verse six of chapter five, Paul says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So here's the reality check that we all need. We all need reality checks. We always need somebody to confront us with the truth, especially if we are slow to embrace it. The reality check is we need scripture to inform us as to who and what we really are. How do you perceive yourself? Some of you I know tend to think of yourself as less than. You tend to think of yourself as as, as as bad, unfitting, unworthy even, right? A lot of us tend to have a very negative self-perception so that we just think, we just sort of default to, I'm a loser, I'm not good at anything, and we just kind of go our own way. Other people tend to think of themselves as, well, hey, you know, got it going on, I'm feeling pretty good, I look pretty good, you know, um, I'm pretty smart, I'm articulate, I've got friends, and we, we think of ourselves rather well, but in reality, life is more complicated than you are more complicated than that. And we usually need someone to help us gain a better perspective of who we are. That's what friends are for. It's what family are for. And it's what the word is for. Who is it that can speak into your life to help you to see who you really are? Hopefully you have some people like that, but we all have the word and scripture speaks. And here scripture tells you and me that we are weak, weak, not a popular American sentiment. We like to think of ourselves as strong, resilient, self-sufficient, right? We like to think of ourselves as can do, go and conquer. We like the idea of the self-made man or woman. But scripture does say that we are weak. There's not a lot of nuance here, but the word weak doesn't mean physically weak in this context. It does mean powerless, but it means morally powerless. It means spiritually powerless. To say that we are weak means that we are incapable of saving ourselves. We are incapable of changing our hearts and our souls. We are not God. We are not mere humanity. We are fallen humanity. So we are in our sin powerless to bring about real change in our lives. Yes, you could bring about some, uh, some relative change. We can learn new disciplines. We can stop bad habits. We can clean up our act. We can learn a new trade. There's a lot that we can accomplish in this life, and that is all uh, a testimony to God's grace that he empowers us to do these things. But change at the deeper level, who you really are in your heart, that is beyond our capacity. We cannot rid ourselves of our guilt or sin. We cannot cleanse ourselves before God. We are unable to rescue or save our own souls. We can't even properly perceive truth at the deepest level like we're supposed to. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says that the, that the spiritual truths of, of, 
of, of Scripture, the, the revelation of God, is not received by those whose minds have not been enlightened because they are spiritually discerned. And so the natural or unconverted person, the one who has not yet believed in Christ, cannot perceive. We are weak, powerless spiritually. Doesn't mean that we're not gifted. Doesn't mean that we aren't talented. It doesn't mean that you're not strong in your situation, in your vocation. It just means that before God, you have no power. And our powerlessness, our weakness is the result of our sinfulness. We are sinful. We are corrupt. We are not just, you are not just the victim of sin. Though you are a victim of sin. We've all been victimized by sin. We've all been hurt, betrayed. We've all been stabbed in the back. We've all been lied to, stolen from. Like we've all been victimized by evil in the world. But we're also all perpetrators. We're all corrupt. We've all done those very things that have been done to us in different way, maybe in different measure to different people, but we've all broke God's law. We're not just victims We're also guilty as spiritual criminals. We are not innocent, not before God. So again, let's just be precise. You can be innocent in a court of law, right? You can be proven innocent by a judge. You you can be vindicated in this life. You can be the good guy or the good girl, or you can be the bad guy or the bad girl in any given situation in this life. In the world, yes. You can be esteemed as righteous or good in a relative sense. And that's important. But before God, no one is righteous. No one is innocent. In Romans chapter 3, we've gone to this passage a number of times, even recently, but in Romans chapter 3, Paul begins to go to the Psalms to prove the point that he's making about the sinfulness of humanity. And he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those are pretty bold, dramatic statements about the human condition. And here Paul is talking about who we are at bottom, like in our hearts, not relatively as we relate to one another in this world, but who we are before God. We're guilty Sinful, weak. And because of this, we actually deserve condemnation. You want to talk about worthiness, right? If we're really talking about what worthiness means, it means you deserve something, you've earned something. And one thing that is clear in Scripture is that all of us, merely by being human beings who have sinned, we have earned, we have merited, we have come to deserve God's judgment. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. By the way, this is what we all do, right? We all have done this. God's wrath, that is his just anger against sin, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
as we suppress the truth, right? We suppress the truth, we ignore it, we downplay it, we argue against it in order to achieve our own ends or to make ourselves feel better. For what can be known about God, Paul says, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The point Paul is making is, listen, we all know better. Everybody, regardless of your religion or your background, regardless of what you've experienced or your your perspective, we all know better. We all know that God has made us for himself and we all instinctively almost, just instinctively ignore him in our sin. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We are weak and sinful and condemned. You know how bad this situation is? This situation means that we are enemies of God. In our natural state, we start out this way. We start out this way as people who are bent towards sin, bent away from God, oriented away from God. And this means that we are not on good terms. If we just go a little bit farther in Romans chapter five, down to verse 10, listen. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Built into that great work of redemption that we have in Jesus is this understanding that before we are saved or redeemed, we are the enemies of God. Okay, so this is our unworthiness. This is our unworthiness. Before God, we are unworthy of his kindness, his love, his mercy, We are not deserving of anything from God other than his just judgment. And you might think, well, okay, well, then that's the end of it, isn't it? I mean, if somebody is your enemy and they've done you wrong consistently, habitually, like throughout their life, they just keep doing you wrong. When do you finally just say, enough's enough, I'm done. I'm done with you. Just beat it. I don't want to hear it anymore. And we know Jesus says, you know, you need to forgive 70 times seven. We know what we're supposed to do. We ain't doing that. Like if somebody does us wrong after a while, we're just like, I'm done. I'm out. I'm just going to, I'm going to walk away. So you would think when you're in this sort of a situation, when our unworthiness is not just like, oh, you haven't measured up. You've actually been hostile in your heart and in your mind to God. That this would be the end, but it's not. It's not the end because God is not only just and holy and righteous, but he is also patient and loving and merciful and kind. And this contributes to his worthiness. He is so much better than us in in all ways. And we see it all in Jesus. We see his worthiness. Look again, verses uh, seven and eight now in chapter five. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's Christ's worthiness, the savior who is worthy to save the unworthy. First of all, just note, who is it that saves? Christ. 
It's important that that name is used actually because the word Christ means Messiah. It wasn't Jesus' last name. His name wasn't, you know, Jesus Christ. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. But he was the Christ. He became known as Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, because Christ is Messiah, the promised one, the servant that was promised throughout all the prophets. You will send your servant who will suffer for us and save us. This is the Christ who will be making an atoning sacrifice for sins that will redeem all of Israel, all of these promises. And it's Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is worthy to save. We're not talking about a mere man. We're not talking about a guru. We're not talking about a prophet. We're not talking about somebody who's merely filled with wisdom. We are talking about the God-man, Jesus Christ, the only one who could actually accomplish this work of redemption. He's the only one that could pull it off because only Jesus Christ is worthy to do it, capable of doing it. Let me, let me read a passage in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. You can just listen. Since therefore the children, that's us, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking about Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. So we are Human, fully human. The Son of God had to become like us. He partook of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ died for sinners to save, to redeem because only he could pull it off. Now we're going to talk more about that in just a minute, but just notice that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly at the right time. At the right time, there's a lot of debate about what that means, but in short, it, it has to mean this, that at the right time, while we were sinners, it's related to that idea. This is the appropriate time. You can't redeem sinners until you have sinners. There's no need for it. He did it to save, to make a people for himself who were unclean. He died to make the unclean clean. But at the right time means that there was no delay. It, it, there, was a, there was no hesitancy. It was a precisely determined time when Christ lived and died and rose again. All of this to do what? Yes, to redeem but in redeeming, we, we see and he demonstrates God's love. Now, his argument here is, is, should be pretty clear to us. because I, I think we understand what he's saying. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. You understand what that means. We're, we're not like, we're not, listen, we're, we're not super eager to run out and, and lay our life down for somebody, right? Even if it's a, you know, if it's, even if it's a good person, Right, you know, it's like I don't know that person. Like, what you're going to lay down your life? You're going to you're going to deny yourself to the point of death for another? Uh, one will scarcely, scarcely do something like that for a righteous person. You know, perhaps 
perhaps one would dare to do it. You know, in other words, Paul's making the point, it's hard to find people who are willing to sacrifice their, themselves and their lives for good people. But what Jesus did is completely different. Jesus sacrificed himself for bad people, for the worst, for me, for us, for the unworthy, for the undeserving. You can kind of, you can kind of see like, okay, we're not in a hurry to, to, to sacrifice ourselves for somebody else, but maybe for a good person, you know, maybe that's probably the best case scenario, right? The person that you deem to be worthy. And yet Jesus lays down his life for the unworthy. God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Who dies to save sinners? Who dies to rescue? Who lays their life down to save unworthy people that are by and large going to be unthankful most of the time? None of us like wasting our time. And if you know in advance, right? If you know in advance how people are going to respond, we're even less inclined to do something. Who dies to save sinners? We don't. We wouldn't anyways, most of us, but God would, God did. That's divine love. God loves all that he has made, even when it's broken and wayward and corrupt and turned in on itself and running away, God still loves. His divine love is seen in the death of Christ. His love is eternal, unending it is everlasting, it is generous, it is big, it is not miserly, it is liberal. His love is sacrificial, costly, and yes, it's undeserved. It's undeserved. In 1 John 4.10, we read, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the second time tonight that word propitiation has popped up. This is love, this is how we know love, not by looking at your love, but by looking at God's love because that's perfect love. That's, that's flawless, beautiful, eternal love. It's love for the undeserving that was costly. Jesus was the propitiation for the sins of the undeserving. That means that he satisfied God's judgment against us, against them. See, in all of this, what we're seeing, what we're seeing is that Christ, that Christ is worthy, that his sacrifice is worthy. This is the point that Hebrews makes again and again. Only Jesus can be the savior of sinners. Only a worthy savior can save unworthy people because we need somebody to be a substitute for us. Like we haven't measured up. We've completely blown it, all of us. Each one, we've gone our own way, Isaiah says. We've all done what's wrong. We've broken God's law. We've ignored him. We've made much of ourselves. We've hated other people. We've been racist, prejudicial, lustful, greedy. We've been thieves. We've done it all, all of us. We are unworthy before God. 
So who could get us out of this mess? Only somebody who is worthy, who did everything right. And every point that we have done what is wrong, we need somebody who has done what is right to stand in our place, to speak on our behalf, to raise us up, to take the punishment that we deserve, to give us the righteousness that we lack, to cleanse us from the sins that we have amassed. Christ's sacrifice is sinless. He is righteous in his sacrifice and he's motivated by love, not by mere duty. How much of the time we do what we're supposed to do, we do it because we're supposed to do it, not because our heart is in it. It's better than nothing. And Christ is motivated by love and the sacrifice is effective. It actually does what it's supposed to do. Jesus didn't die to make salvation a, a, a possibility. Jesus died to save sinners from hell, and he actually does this. He accomplishes salvation for us who believe. He could only do all of this. He could only do all of this because Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the God man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He is all God and all man. Divine nature, human nature, one person. That's the significance of the incarnation. That it would lead us to this, a good Friday. Only a worthy Savior can save an unworthy people. So we look at this and we say, okay, it's Good Friday. It's when we think about the death of Jesus. And I know some churches like you to leave here feeling all gloomy and pretending that Jesus hasn't raised from the dead when we already know that he has. And then we pretend like we're surprised on Sunday because he rose from the dead. We don't live in that reality. We live in the reality that Jesus has died. Yes, and he has been raised. Yes, and he has ascended into heaven where he sits enthroned. That's our reality. We live there. We're not playing. We're not pretending. We are marveling at his death we mourn that he died for our sins, but we rejoice that he died for our sins because he saves us in that. And he does this not in an attempt to pull off something, something really risky. He did it with certainty, knowing it would be done, knowing that he would accomplish this. Though it would be painful, though it would cost him much, he knew it was a certainty for us. Christ died for us. That's what Good Friday is about. So what? Well, so what? It, it matters because it means that for those of you who believe your guilt, your guilt is removed. It's gone. I know it doesn't always feel like it's gone, but it's gone. Before the face of God, where it matters most, your guilt is gone. All of the things that we have done that have stained and damaged and dishonored, all of the things that we have done and everything that we have done that have done this kind of damage in the world it's far more grievous against God whom we have ultimately sinned against. Guilt is gone. We are forgiven of our sins. We are cleansed of all unrighteousness. We are made holy and pure before the face of God. Listen to 1 Peter 1.18. You were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. That's what Christ's sacrifice has done, takes away guilt. We have forgiveness and cleansing. So what? It means that the wrath of God now has been satisfied, quenched, 
You know what it's like when you want to scream at your kid because they're being really annoying? Okay, so I sometimes do just scream at my kid. You're not supposed to do that. Right, Mimi? I'm not supposed to. I'm not supposed to. Sometimes I yell. It's wrong. And I always apologize. After, okay, the point is, you know what it's like when you want to do something, you want to do the wrong thing and you don't do it. You hold back and you kind of feel like you've won, but on the inside you're raging. That's no victory. That's like, you don't get points for that. That's not a good thing. You're not in a good spot. Your heart is not in a good spot. It's not that God is just biting his tongue. It's not that he's like, okay, I'm really mad, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna judge them because my son did something nice for them. His wrath has been fully poured out, but on his son instead of us. And so God is actually satisfied. There is no more anger. There's no more wrath. There's no more judgment for us. Guilt is removed, wrath is satisfied. We are now reconciled to God. In other words, we've been brought near, brought close to God through Jesus Christ. This is, the, this is the greatest thing imaginable that we as an unworthy people who have ran away from God and destroyed our spiritual lives, through Jesus, we are forgiven and cleansed. Judgment is removed and we are brought back into close, intimate fellowship with our maker. No barriers reconciled at peace and we now know because of Christ's sacrifice because of this death we know God's love we know it we know it I mean it's such an abstract thing to talk about love and God's love and God is love it's easy for religious people and spiritually minded people to talk about love in these abstract terms but God doesn't leave it in the abstract God says, I love you. You want to know how much I love you? I will show you by redeeming you in the most costly way conceivable. And because of Christ's death, our very lives are redeemed. Your life is redeemed from the old ways, the futile ways, the aimless ways. You have purpose and power given to you by God that completely reorients who you are and what you are about. We're all different. We've got our own interests and passions and gifts and strengths and weaknesses, but in Christ, our life is redeemed and constantly being renewed. So, this is why it's called Good Friday. Because Christ died for us intentionally successfully and he rose from death so yes there is a very real and important sense in which we are unworthy unworthy as we stand before God and that should keep us humble needy it should keep us in a posture of prayer and seeking not demanding but Christ's worthiness, Christ's worthiness, that, that inspires things like gratitude and admiration and adoration because that's combined with God's love for us. When you are unworthy and you see it for what it is and you are loved anyways, you are received, you are, you are trusted, you are, you are blessed you are rebuilt, you are redeemed, then that produces ongoing, deep and abiding gratitude and zeal as well as peace and joy. All of this because Jesus died for the unworthy.
a lot of different kinds of Christians and different denominations. And, but any church, any Christian who at their center knows this, they are our brothers and sisters. Any church that understands that we deserve God's judgment, but in Christ through his life and his death and his resurrection, we have life with him and because of that with each other. If we understand that the death of Christ is all about salvation by grace through what God has done, not through our own striving, then, then we are actually one. So we celebrate Good Friday by remembering a good God who sent his good son to redeem bad people like us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to teach us where we are ignorant, that you would lead us where we are lost. We pray, God, that, that you would be kind to comfort us where we are afflicted. We pray, God, that you would lift our heads, give us joy and zeal. We want to be a people who know you so well that we carry about with us this, this aroma of the divine that other people would sense like, wow, these are people who've really spent time with Jesus and are following him. In Christ's name, amen.